Well, that is definitely the truth for us as believers. Christ is our only hope. And there's really not a message that could be more out of step with the world today, that Christ is our hope. Um, as things get worse, we seem to be more and more different than everyone else as Christians. It's good for us to realize we're not like the world and we're not to be like the world. We're to proclaim the truth to the world. We're to love those who we're speaking to. But we are different. We have Christ as our hope. He's our hope in life and death. Not everybody has that hope. And so today we want to look at why we have such a hope. How can it be that we would have such a hope? Lord willing, I plan to start another book soon and go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Lord willing, that will be Ecclesiastes in January. But before that, uh, we wanted to bring to you certain messages, truths, theological sermons that we need to hear on a regular basis. And today is a, a vital one, a crucial one. And it's on the doctrine of justification. I don't have a passage to read to you this morning because we're going to be all over the Bible. So you need to get your, your fingers warmed up and ready to go and turn pages. We'll be looking at quite a few texts. Some I'll just read to you and others we'll, we'll go and, and look at together. But the question that we're asking, the question that justification really causes us to ask, the answer really is justification, but the question is, how can I be right with God? How can I be right with God? It's a question you often hear people asking or, or maybe assuming they know the answer as they get close to the end of life. Maybe they're on the hospital bed saying that they need to be right with God. They need to be right with God before they die. That's a question that goes all the way back to the fall of Adam and Eve. Once Adam and Eve sinned, how can they be right with God? Can they make themselves right? What do they have to do? What does that look like? The oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, has that question listed three times in the book of Job. How can a man be right with God? If you were to ask that question today of different people, you're going to get different answers. It's not as if everyone agrees on that question and that answer. The average American will answer that God will look at the good that I've done and that's going to outweigh the bad. God has a scale and as long as we do enough good, that'll outweigh the bad. That's what the average American would tell you. Uh, the Roman Catholic will answer, according to their theology, that the way to be right with God is through faith and works. Yes, you've got to believe, but you also have to work. You have to do the sacraments. You have to do the things that they tell you. A liberal Christian will say that God will save everyone. So the question's kind of pointless. Why even ask how to be right with God? God will make everyone right with him. Of course, the atheist ignores the question. Many atheists today just suppress the truth of God's existence. And on and on we could go down the list. But the way to figure out the answer to the question is not to ask everyone else. Not to go around and take a survey and a poll. Because it will scare you what even Bible-believing Christians might say about this. The way we answer a question like that is to go to the Bible. We go to the Bible and say, what does the Bible teach us on this doctrine? That's doing theology. That's doing systematic theology. When we look through the Bible and we see different verses that touch on this and we put it all together. Now, since we have 2,000 years of church history, we don't have to guess at these things. They have been established. They have been pointed out in Scripture. Thankfully, the men who've gone before us, especially the reformers, have looked to the Bible and seen where this truth had been lost for over a thousand years. And they redeemed it. They brought it back. God working through them brought it back to the church. We want to search the scriptures. We want to find out the answer to this question. How can we be right with God? And the answer lies in the doctrine of justification, a teaching that is laid out in scripture. If we read the Bible and we read it and understand it rightly, we will see this truth in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in Jesus' teachings, in the apostles' teachings, even in the last book of the Bible. This is no small issue. Justification is not just something that the theologians in their ivory towers need to understand. It's something we all need to understand. The newest Christian needs to understand this issue so they won't be taken and thrown around by every wind of doctrine. The mature believer needs to be reminded of this doctrine. And the unbeliever needs to hear this, maybe for the first time. 
and see what the gospel really is about. Martin Luther was converted in his reading of the book of Romans as he read about this. He said this article is the article, the thing which the church stands or falls on. This doctrine is the head, the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. The reformer John Calvin said, This doctrine is the main hinge on which Christianity turns. It is the hinge. The door doesn't even open for us unless we are justified before God's sight. So today I want to go through five aspects of the doctrine of justification. Five aspects, five things we need to know about this doctrine to understand the teaching of the gospel, to understand what's being done for us if we are believers, what's being done for us, what's already been done, and how we can have that very thing, justification. How did that come to be? First of all, let's look at the need for justification. Do we even need to be right before God? Do we? Some people would say, no, you don't need to be right before God. God loves you. God has a great plan for your life. You know, just put on some Christian music, go to church every once in a while. You'll be right with God. Just do good things. You see, that's not what the Bible says. It says each and every person has a great need to be justified, has a great need to be righteous before God. We're in a bad spot without Christ. We're in a bad spot without justification. The need for justification. Why does God require every person to be righteous? Why does God require every person to be just before him? Well, because he's holy. Because he's perfectly righteous. A perfect God could not have anything unholy in his presence. And he created everything holy and righteous. God created and owns everything. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was good. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And in that creation, God required perfect obedience. He told Adam and Eve. He told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He required them to obey. He requires all of us to obey. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 5.48, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. That's the level. You you have to be perfect. If you don't see the need for justification, just listen to that. You have to be perfect. Uh, 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. There's no darkness. God is perfect. God is holy. And if you want to see God, if you want to stand before God, you have to be perfect. You have to be holy. Now we're in trouble, aren't we? Because Adam and Eve broke God's law. Everyone since then has been born with a sin nature and has broke God's law. All of us, all mankind, has fallen into sin. Let's go back to Ephesians 2. We were there, I think, about a year ago in Ephesians 2. But let's just remind ourselves of verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2. Turn there with me. And I want you to see how Paul describes Humanity before a person is saved. What were you like before you were saved? Where were you headed before Christ redeemed you? Even if you didn't know this, this is where you were, Paul says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't partially sick. You weren't just sort of stumbling along, making a few mistakes. You were dead. You were a dead person laying down because of your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world. You went along with the world. You you followed what the world did. The world said sin, and you sinned as much as you could. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit, that's Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We were all sons and daughters of disobedience. We were running along with the world. We were running along with the path that Satan wanted us to run. It doesn't sound like we were perfect, we were righteous, Paul says. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. We wanted what we wanted, what our desires wanted. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Not just actions of sin, but thoughts. Our thinking was corrupted. Our thinking was sinful. And we're by nature children of wrath. 
We were born in our nature. We had inherited a sin nature from Adam. And that caused us to desire sin. That caused us to want to sin. Even as the rest. Paul says you were just like everyone else. Even as the rest. That's not holy. That's not perfect. That's not righteous. We need to be justified. We need to be made righteous or declared righteous. We'll talk about that in a moment. Romans 3.10 There is none righteous, not even one. Not your favorite friend that's an unbeliever. Not your sweetest grandma that didn't believe in Christ. There's none righteous, not even one. No one. No one by themselves. No one without Christ can be righteous. For all have sinned, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us has sinned in the past and continues to fall short of the glory of God. Everyone. No one gets out of that. James 2.10, forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. If you just have a thought that is not a thought according to faith, that's a sin. You have broken God's law. You have committed a sin. And none of us can save ourselves. None of us can fix that problem. We can't go to the Bible and say, okay, I admit I've got a problem. Now I can fix it. Now I'm going to go ahead and work my way back to God. I'll just earn it back. Sometimes our kids want to earn it back. They get something taken away. Say, Dad, can we earn it back? And of course, they can with us as parents sometimes. It doesn't work like that with God, does it? It doesn't work like that with God. Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Even when we try to work hard, they're like filthy, bloody rags. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. We try to earn it back. We try to work hard. We try to somehow work it off as an unbeliever. And all these systems in the world are out there trying to teach us how we might get back to God. And Isaiah says it's it's a filthy garment. It's a bloody rag. It's thrown in the trash. Galatians 3.12, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. You try to work your way back through God's law. I'm going to obey everything God said in the Bible. I'm just going to earn it back. I messed up yesterday, but today I'm going back to him. Paul says that's a curse. You try to do that. That's a curse, Galatians 3.12. And he says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You're already cursed. You can't earn it back. You're already cursed. Because of this sin, because of the sins that we commit, because of that, we are not justified before God. Man is not justified before God because of their sin. And they're going to pay an eternal penalty for that. The Bible's very clear. I know a lot of people deny hell. They deny eternal punishment. They deny that anyone would spend eternity in hell. But the scriptures are clear. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is already revealed. The idea is it's already happening. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Sin pays wages. We, we work for sin and sin pays us back wages. The payment is death. That's what we earn from sin. But the free gift of God's grace is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Ephesians 5, 6, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So the wrath is already coming. The wrath is going to get worse and worse and worse until God judges the whole world. We have a great need to be right with God. There's no doubt the scripture makes that clear. That's the bad news. If you're not in Christ today, that's where you're at. If you're not a believer today, all these verses describe you. They describe the position that you're in before God. And you cannot somehow do something of your own to get right with God. That's where justification comes in. That's where the truth of what Christ has done for us is the good news. So let's move to number two and let's describe what it is, the nature of justification. We have a need to be right with God. We have a need to be righteous before God. Well, what, what is 
this justification process that God does for us through Christ? What is that? How do we define it? Justification, here's the theological definition. It's a legal declaration, legal, forensic. Think of a law court where God declares a person righteous. It's a declaration. It's a judgment, if we want to think in modern day terms, not the judgment of God, but a judge is ruling and they're saying, you're free to go. It's a declaration. The judge says you're free to go because God has pardoned all our guilt from sin, giving it to Christ on the cross. So in justification, God declares us righteous. He pardons, because of that, he pardons all of the sin that we've done, all the sin that we're doing now, all the sin that we will do, all of it, and puts it on Christ. And then he gives us Christ's righteousness, making us holy and blameless in his sight. The word to be justified, the verb that comes up often in the New Testament, is to declare righteous. Dikaio in Greek. Dikaio means to declare. It's a declaration. It's God declaring that the ungodly person is righteous in his sight. We have this great need, and we have, we have this need to, to be righteous before God. We can't do it, but God does it for us. And the language used is it's a declaration. That word is key. you got to remember that. It's a declaration. He's declaring it. When God justifies someone, it doesn't mean he's making them righteous. It doesn't mean what the Roman Catholics teach, that justification is a process over time where you're made a little more holy and righteous as you go. And maybe, maybe if you do enough, you'll get to go to heaven after purgatory when you die. That's not what the word means. That means to declare instantaneously is the idea in context, to declare that someone already is righteous. The whole teaching of justification in the Bible, it's it's the opposite of a process. Justification is an instant, one-time thing that every believer received. It doesn't happen over time. It doesn't happen multiple times in your life as a believer. It happens at the instant that you're saved. It's a declaration. We in ourselves are not righteous. Even the moment we're saved, but we're declared that in Christ. We're declared that in Christ. We're given Christ. We're given all that he's done, all that he is. We still have a process of holiness called sanctification, but that's a different doctrine. We're looking at justification, how to be right before God. We see this over and over in the New Testament where People are declared righteous. You remember the thief on the cross? And and Jesus said to this thief, when this thief expressed faith, Jesus said that today you shall be with me in paradise. What did that thief do? Did he take the sacraments? Did he get baptized to earn his salvation? No, all he said was, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That was it. That was his expression of faith. That was his confession. That was it. And Jesus said, truly, today, this very day, no purgatory, today you're going to be with me in heaven. When you die, Jesus will already be there because he dies first. You'll be with me, he says. There's no time to do the sacraments. Those those works don't earn that thief anything. And Luke 18, Jesus was talking about the Pharisees. And he was saying, don't be self-righteous like them. Because they like to justify themselves. See, God can justify. That's declaring a person righteous. And then the Pharisees were trying to justify themselves by doing all these works and saying, look at me, look at me. And so he tells this parable. And he says the publican, the sinner, was beating his breast as opposed to the Pharisee who was prideful and bragging. This publican was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, this man, Jesus says, went home justified before God that day. He didn't make himself righteous by beating his breast and saying, I'm a sinner. God declared him righteous because he was repenting, because he was confessing his sin, because he was having faith. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace with God is, is immediate. The moment we have faith, 
we're justified and we have peace with God. It's immediate. But we don't have to wait for it until we die. We don't have to wait for grace to be infused and righteousness to be infused over time. It's immediate. Romans 4, 5, speaking of Abraham, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies. It's God who justifies. It's God who declares it. It's not us. His faith is credited as righteousness. And then Romans 8, 33, God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Now you think about condemn and condemnation. What is condemnation? It's a judgment. It's a proclamation that that person is going to be punished. Well, justification is the opposite. It's a declaration. It's a proclamation that a person is not going to be punished, but is right with God. Justification isn't the act of allowing us uh, to now start improving ourselves. That's not justification. It is instant. It is a declaration. It's not God saying, go make yourself better now. I've done something for you. Go make yourself better now. When I worked in prison ministry, spoke with a lot of drug addicts, people hooked on drugs. And they often came to our Bible study there in the, in the prison ministry thinking that it was another rehab program. That Christianity is, is a good thing. They knew that. They had heard that. And they thought, if I come, then I can get on these 12 steps of Christianity or whatever, and that will reform me. Now, they did learn truth, and we did preach the gospel, and some were saved. But Christianity is not just some type of reforming 12-step program that will bless the unbeliever and they can go back and live a better life. No, it's God declaring us righteous. It's not working our way back to God. It's not reforming our bad habits. It's not transforming us over time. That happens through sanctification, but justification, immediate declaration of God. Now, since the Reformation, this is how evangelical, gospel-believing Christians have spoken. This is the gospel. That we can be right with God through Christ our Lord who died on the cross for us, was raised on the third day, gave us his righteousness, took away our sin. That's the gospel. If you have faith in him, you get those things. You receive those things. God declares us just. You can see how slightly changing that though and saying God makes us just. God Over time, helps us to be just. We have to be careful with our language. When it comes to theology, language is key. Every word matters. My professor in seminary said, the person who defines their terms the best, according to the Bible, will win every theological argument. We have to define our terms. We have to define justification. Declaration. Even some Protestants today, though, are denying this. The Reformation brought it back. It was always there, but it had kind of been hidden for a time. And they brought it back to the light. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli. They brought it back out. And they said, here's the gospel. And then over time, people have taken it for granted. Churches don't preach it. Theologians are looking back saying the reformers got it wrong. All kinds of books are being written about this. The scholarly world is loving this. And they're being confused. They're confusing sanctification with justification. Justification's instantaneous sanctification over time. Progressive. Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, so many other groups confuse these two. We've got to get it right. What's the nature of justification? It's a declaration by God where he declares the ungodly person righteous. What's the basis for that? Number three, what's the basis for that? How does this even come to happen? If you can't work for it, but yet God says he's going to do it and he has done it, how does that work? How does that happen? You get in your car, you drove up here, you might not have thought of how the whole engine worked. But in point number three here, the basis, we're looking at how this thing works. And the Bible tells us how it works. We don't have to guess. A lot of people say we just don't know. We just don't know. We have to just trust. We do need to trust God. We do need to have faith. But he tells us how things work. So we understand. So we know. So we don't get confused. Remember, in justification, God declares that a person who's a sinner is forgiven of their sins. And that person receives Christ's righteousness. And therefore, the believer is right before God. That's in a nutshell how it works. Let's open it up a bit more, though. At the moment a person is saved, they have their sins taken away and the righteousness of Christ given to them. It's called double imputation. 
double imputation. Imputation, we can think of that as an accounting term, to have it credited to your account or reckoned to your account. Every time you sin, that sin gets listed on your account. But when you're saved, those sins get taken off your account, and now Christ's righteousness gets put on your account. So you have this going on. You have an exchange. Your negative $1 trillion in debt, God takes that away, you're back to zero, and then he gives you a trillion dollars in its place. Infinite, really. Trillion doesn't even describe the infinite riches of God. But let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21. And this is the key verse. This is the verse that tells us how it happens. Other verses talk about it. Other verses describe it. If you want one verse, my favorite verse in the whole Bible, the heart of the gospel right here. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, that's God, made him, that's Christ. So God the Father made God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a beautiful verse. That tells you how it happens. What's the basis of this? How can God do this? God is perfectly righteous, and yet he's going to forgive a sinner? And he's going to give that sinner Christ's righteousness? How does that happen? Well, it happens right here. God tells us how it happens. Because the Father made the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. He didn't make him as in he forced him, but, but God did it through his own power, through his own work. The Father did this. And the Son, he knew about sin. It's not like he was dumb to what sin was. He knew what sin was. The Son knew what sin was. Christ knew what sin was. But God credited our sin to him. Christ had never sinned. He was perfect. He lived a perfect life. There was no negatives on his account. He lived a perfect life as a man. Upon this earth, he obeyed everything under the law of God. And it says here that our sin goes on to his account. That's how it happens. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He didn't become sin. He didn't go out and sin for us. But our sin got reckoned on his account. You might even see in your Bible that the words to be are in italics. Meaning that they had to supply it in the translation to smooth it out. He made him who knew no sin, sin on our behalf. If we leave out those words. He took away our sin. That's the first imputation. Remember it's doubled, it's two. Christ takes our sin and then what does the rest of the verse say? So that, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. He reckoned to Christ our sin and we get Christ's righteousness. It's the great exchange. It's the best deal ever that's ever happened in the history of mankind. Where do you get that kind of deal in today's world? You're never going to get it. There's no religion that would do that. The wrath of God was satisfied by Christ on the cross. And then he was raised again the third day. And that ensures the transaction that we're talking about right here. It happened on the cross. It was proven true by the resurrection. What a wonderful, wonderful theology this is. And without Christ... Everyone's got to pay for their own sins, but if we're in Christ, he paid for it already. It happened at the cross. It doesn't happen in our life. It's already taken place. It's already been done. The Bible's crystal clear. We can't save ourselves. And you might wonder, and I've been asked this, how come forgiveness of sins isn't enough? How come we need Christ's righteousness? Well, if you're forgiven of your sins, you just get back to neutral. You're back to where Adam and Eve were. You're back to zero. But that's not enough to stand before God. Neutral, innocent, if we want to use that term, isn't enough to stand before God. We have to be perfectly righteous. We need to be in the positive category, infinitely in the positive category. So it's not enough just to get back to zero. We need the righteousness of Christ in our place so that when God looks at us, he sees Christ. When God looks at us, he sees the works that Christ have done, has done. All the good works that he's done. We can't be standing just at zero. We'll be consumed by his awesome holiness. We need to be counted not just innocent, but perfectly righteous. We need a positive record. 
And there's only one person with a positive record. There's only one person that's ever lived with a positive record. The one, Jesus Christ. We must not only be free of sin, but be found righteous in his sight. That was Christ alone who did this work. He was the only one who did it. The only one who's ever done it. There's no one else to come. There's no one else before him that did this work. Double imputation only comes from him. You know, R.C. Sproul said, if you really want to separate Bible-believing Christians, gospel-believing Christians, from all the other types of Christianity, he said we should just come up with a new name. Double imputationists. And there's even some t-shirts that you can get that say double imputationists. I know it's a big, heady theological term, but it's true. That separates all other kinds of things that call themselves Christianity. If you believe in what this verse is teaching, 2 Corinthians 5.21, If you believe that, if you had faith in Christ and you're a Christian, that's happened to you, that's been done. And that's a different story than other religions and cults talk about. But Christ is the one who did it. It's not just that this transaction occurred, but it's being found in Him. You have to be in Him to have this happen. You have to be united with Him. Romans 3.25, Christ was crucified to demonstrate God's righteousness so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. You see, God's perfectly righteous, perfectly just. So God can't just overlook your sin. God can't just turn away. But based on what's happening in this verse, what's happening in this transaction, God sends his son to stand in your place. So he can be just, he can be a just judge, and the one who justifies. It's no wonder that MacArthur looked at 2 Corinthians 5.21, John MacArthur, he said, this sentence reveals the essence of the atonement expresses the heart of the gospel message, articulates the most glorious truth in Scripture. It's like a cache of rare jewels, each deserving of a careful, reverential examination under the magnifying glass of Scripture. You see, when you got saved, you might not have known all this was even going on. It's like this rare jewel, and it's right there, but we don't see it yet. We just see one little facet. And then as we're growing in Christ, and we're reading Scripture, and we're hearing sermons, and we're studying theology... We pick up this jewel and we start turning it around and we start looking at it. And we don't see any defects, any imperfections. We just continue to marvel at God's beauty and all that he's done for us. That's why we study these things. But Christ did it all for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 So that we might die to sin. There it is. Die to sin. First imputation. And then live to righteousness. Second part of the imputation. Well, God has displayed His Son to satisfy the wrath that we deserve. God has put His Son on the cross to satisfy the wrath that those who would believe in Him deserve. And He's done it to glorify His name. And He's done it to save a people for His own possession. But Christ did the work. We don't take any part of that. Were you there? Were you helping Jesus out on the cross? Were you willing to take a few nails in your arm with him to somehow pay off your sin? We have no part in that. He did the perfect atoning work for us. He's the one who lived a sinless life. He's the one who who perfectly obeyed his father. Every detail. He's the one who willingly went to the cross. It was by his power that he was raised himself from the dead. By the power of the spirit as well. We were not there. You weren't there when he was crucified. You weren't there to help him raise up from the dead. We did nothing to make that happen. We did nothing. God did it all through Christ. Christ did the work. We're simply poor beggars. We're just poor beggars. And we're just saying, thank you, God. Thank you. I'll receive what you give me. Thank you. And these poor beggars that we are, we get to be appointed heirs of eternal life. We're just a poor beggar. And God walked along and blessed you and saved you. Jesus paid for it in his own blood. Not through the blood of goats and calves, it says in Hebrews 9, but through his own blood. He, no one else, he did it. He entered the holy place, the place where God dwells. He entered it once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. It's one time. A lot of religions try to sacrifice Christ over and over. They try to put him back on the cross over and over. Some cults think that Jesus has one more sacrifice to pay for us. And heaven someday. No, once for all. He gave himself as a sacrifice. You know what once for all means? That means once for all. One time. That's it. 
It's never going to happen again. His work on the cross has already been done. It can't be redone. It can't be undone. And it won't happen a second time. There's no continual re-sacrifice of Christ. So this doctrine of double imputation, that describes the gospel. That's the heart. That's what's happening in that transaction that Christ paid. But it's hated by the world, this doctrine is. It's hated by cults. It's hated by unbelievers. Hated by some who call themselves Christians. The Presbyterian Church USA wanted to take out a line of the song in Christ alone. They wanted to put the song in their hymnal, the new hymnals a few years ago. And they wanted to take out the phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied. You know, we're going to sing this song in a minute. And you'll sing the wrath of God was satisfied. With Christ, sacrifice on the cross, it satisfies God's wrath for us who believe. It's done. That's a great phrase of that song. Propitiation is what it's talking about. They wanted to cut it out. Thankfully, the Gettys who wrote the song said, no, you can't cut that out. That's part of the gospel. But many God-haters want to call this cosmic child abuse. If you watch that documentary, American Gospel 2, it's a great documentary. Watch it. They interview both sides. They interview all the liberal Christians who say, this is cosmic child abuse. How could a father kill his own son for people? That doesn't make sense. Then they have guys like Paul Washer and John MacArthur and all these guys who preach the gospel show how it's right in the Bible. It's not cosmic child abuse. It's the most beautiful blessing a believer could ever receive. It was God's plan from the beginning. Christ willingly went. He wasn't forced to go. He willingly went because that was the plan of the Father. He is the Son of God. This was their plan all along. The Trinity. The Bible tells us that in plain words, God demonstrates His own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not cosmic child abuse. It's sacrificial love. Christ died for his church, Ephesians 5. But people object. Something that's not in the Bible, they say. They say it got invented by the reformers. No one in church history ever believed this. If you study church history, a lot of times the Catholics will say, look, we pretty much own church history and nobody said this till Martin Luther. Where do you guys get that from? And I respond, well, it's in the Bible, first of all. So church history is great. I love it. Teaching a class right now to some teenagers on church history. First, we go to the Bible. Because there's a lot of people in church history who get things wrong. We go to Scripture. It's in the Bible. The Bible is our sole authority. But we would expect, if it's in the Bible, to see it throughout church history. That people would preach it. That people would write on it. And they did. They did. It's right there. It's just they don't use the same word that we do. You know, they wrote in Greek and they, they wrote in Latin. Other languages around the world. They described it, though. Listen to this letter that a friend wrote to his friend Diognetus in the 2nd century. So around the 140s, 150s. And he's talking about 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous man while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. It's there because it's in the Bible. And there's always been a remnant. It's just that the reformers really brought it to light and started publishing and writing and used the printing press to thankfully bring it out to the world. All right, it's been a long time on number three because that's where most of us are often weak, the basis of justification. We need to know that. Let's move on now to the cause of justification. What is the cause? Okay, this is how it happens. We just looked, number three. But what causes it to happen? Do we do something to get this ball rolling? Do we do something to get God to do this transaction? No, it's by God's grace alone. Sola gratia, by God's grace alone. Let's go to the book of Ephesians again. Ephesians 2, 4. So right after that bad news that we read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we get the good news. We, we get the good news of what happens to a person who trusts in Christ. How does this happen? But... God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgression, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I'm still waiting for the part where I did something here. It says God did it. God's the one who did it. God's the one who did it according to his great love and his mercy and his grace. And just in case you didn't catch it, Paul says in parentheses, by grace, you have been saved. And just in case we didn't understand that, he comes back in 2.8, for by grace you have been saved. 
How did this happen? What was the power behind it? God's grace. By grace you have been saved, 2.8, through faith. We're going to talk about faith, but it's God's grace that causes this to happen. And that's not of yourselves. You did none of it. Even the faith is granted by God. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Did we cause it to happen? No. We can't. God caused it to happen. So these verses teach us that salvation is from above. It's from God. It's not from anything we've done. We didn't earn God's grace. We can't earn God's grace. It's free. That's what a gift is. A gift is free. You don't earn a gift. It's not a gift if you earn it. God says in Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God has done it. God did the transaction. God caused it to happen. God planned it all out. God sent his son into the world to die on the cross for sinners. It's in the Old Testament too. Go to Isaiah 59 with me. Isaiah has a lot to say about the Messiah, about justification. Isaiah 59. Were people in the Old Testament saved? Of course they were. Because they saw these truths right here. They trusted in God. They were looking for a Messiah. Isaiah 59.9. Therefore, justice is far from us. So he's, Isaiah's admitting. Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, they're like dead. We are like dead men. I go to verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Now go to verse 14. Justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the street, and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. That's just pointing back to what we've already said. We have a great need for justification. They realize that in the Old Testament. But look in the middle of verse 15. You see the change, just like we saw in Ephesians 2? You see it? Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. He's speaking of what he's going to do in the Son, in Christ. He's speaking of how he will do it himself by his grace. Isaiah 49, 12, Behold, These will come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. It's there. The gospel's in the Old Testament. It's not as clear as it is in the New. We don't know the name of the Messiah like we know Jesus, the name. We don't have all the details of this theology that gets opened up more in the New, but it's there. It's all over God's Bible. Justification, and it happens through God's grace alone. That's the power behind it. That's the cause. Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If it happens any other way, then it's not grace. It's got to come from God. He's doing it. He's doing it because of his own sacrificial love. It's God's favor. Yeah, grace is God's favor. But it's more than that. It's more than that. It's not just God giving us something nice, something that we need. That would be mercy. But grace means we deserve the opposite. We deserve eternal punishment. And God gave us eternal life because of Christ. That's really the definition of grace. We deserve to spend eternity on death row. And the judge comes He takes our place in jail and gives us his mansion and his car and all of his money. And he's a trillionaire. It's more than just showing us favor. We deserve eternal punishment. 
And he showed us favor by switching that all around and giving us eternal life. Instead of his wrath, we got his grace. In 2016, Ligonier, um, they do these surveys every four years. And they ask evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians, or people who identify as Bible-believing Christians, to agree or disagree with this statement. Here's the statement. By the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. Now, you should know everything we just talked about says that can't happen. That's not true. 52% of the people that they surveyed in America agreed with that. They also said, do you disagree or, or agree with this? A person obtains peace with God by first taking the initiative to seek God, and then God responds with grace. So they ask a question. They just said, do you agree with this or not? You take the first step towards God, and then he gives you his grace. 83% of evangelicals agreed or somewhat agree with this. At the best, they're confused. At the worst, they're lost. We are not doing something for God, and then he responds with his grace. It's by grace alone, not by anything that we do. You can't stand before God someday. If he says, why are you here? What brought you here? Are you going to point to yourself? Well, I chose you first, God. I made that first step, and then you did the rest. No, you're going to just bow down and say, thank you, Lord. It's your grace. It's by Christ alone. Yes, I had faith, but you gave me even that. Which leads us to our last one, the means of justification. So this is great. This is good theology, Pastor, but how does it apply to me? Especially if I don't have it yet. How does it apply to me? Through faith. Through faith. Sola fide. It happens through faith. See, the means is how something comes about. The instrument. Faith is the sole instrument, cause of our justification. By putting our trust in Christ and turning from our sins, we get this applied to us. And it's at the bottom of the list for a reason. Because first, we need to know the need. Then we need to know what it is, how it works, what's the cause. It's not about us first. It's about what God has done. All we need to do is recognize the sin which brought about this need. But yeah, we have to have faith. It's the instrument. It's the channel by which these blessings are brought to us. We need to exercise faith. Christ is the object of our faith. We're not just having faith in faith. We're not just having faith in good things. We're not just having faith in the Creator God. We're having faith in Christ the Messiah. A specific person who did a specific work. Faith, the instrument by which we receive justification. The the Bible teaches us that that Christ is the way, the truth, the life. No one else can come to God except through Him. Through Him. That's the only path. There's exclusivity to the Christian faith. And the gospel demands that we trust only in Christ. We can't trust in Christ and Buddha and Muhammad and just kind of roll the dice and see what happens. Or I'll trust in Jesus most days, but some days I'll trust in myself for salvation. I'll go back and forth and do some works and some sacraments. No, it's faith in Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. G.I. Packer, the, the great Puritan lover of Puritan works, he just died recently. He said, for the doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. Remember the Greek god Atlas in mythology? He, he put the whole world on his shoulders. And he supposedly held up the world. That's what the Greeks believe. Packer says, this doctrine is like Atlas. It bears the world on its shoulders. The entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace, doctrines of election, effectual calling, regeneration, repentance, adoption, prayer, the church, ministry, the Lord's Supper, baptism. They all have to be interpreted, understood through the light of justification by faith. That's just a nice little lesson on theology unless you're actually saved unless you've had faith been justified now you care about all those things he goes on to say when justification falls when this doctrine is not taught when it falls all true knowledge of the grace of god in human life will fall with it and then as luther said the church itself falls when atlas falls everything that rested on his shoulders comes crashing down if you've been justified by faith then you have been forgiven then you have peace with God, it says in Romans 
It's through faith, our loving and believing in Christ as Savior. Faith, the instrument. You have to have faith. Do you have faith today? I don't mean do you believe that Jesus existed. I don't mean do you believe the Bible's true. Those are important. You got to have those. But if you actually put your life in the hands of Christ and turned away from any attempt to save yourself, that's what faith means. You're not saying, I'll give you 99% for my salvation, but I'll withhold this little bit of works over here. No, everything is in Christ's hands, and you completely turn away from works, you completely turn away from sin, and you trust in Christ. You can't have the benefits of justification without that. You have to have faith. You must. John Calvin said, wherever the knowledge of faith alone is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished. Religion is abolished. The church destroyed. The hope of salvation utterly overthrown. Yeah, there are other systems out there that will tell you you've got to do all these things. You've got to be baptized as an infant, and that gives you some grace. And then you've got to do the seven sacraments, and that gives you grace. And then maybe you'll be justified. The Bible says, if you have faith in Christ alone, you will be justified. You are justified the moment you truly exercise faith. You must repent of all that dishonors God. You must believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. Isn't that what we want? Don't you want to be right with God? Or do you want to try to earn it? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We have to be right with God through faith in Christ alone. I'll give you one more quote from a Dutch theologian as I finish here. Wilhelmus Albrockel. Probably haven't heard too many quotes from him. He's a great theologian. He said this in the 16th century. Justification is the soul of Christianity and the fountainhead of all true comfort and sanctification. He who errs in this doctrine errs to his eternal destruction. One must therefore be all the more earnest to properly understand, defend, and meditate upon this doctrine. We've got to meditate on this. We've got to think about this. We've got to study this. We've got to defend it when our friends and family members tell us another gospel. Lovingly tell them the truth. What the Bible says about the gospel, about Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love your gospel. We love the fact that you can justify, you have justified sinners like us. We love Jesus Christ, the church does here, the believers in this room. We love all that he's done for us. And we thank you. We're just poor beggars, Lord, just holding up a hand. And you've come along and you've gifted us with everything. And so, Lord, today, we pray that this doctrine will have an impact on our lives. That we'll live for Christ because we understand what he's done for us. And we'll be able to tell others of what he's done for us. Not just our personal testimony, but what's in the Bible, what's in the scriptures. And I pray for any unbelievers in the room, Lord, and that you would impress this teaching upon them. Help them to see their need and to see what they can have in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that they would come to saving faith in him today. They would come to you through the Lord Jesus. And we ask all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.